2: Big data, the phrase has become a part of the public consciousness because of predictions of what it can do and what it tells us about different aspects of society. But what really is big data and what are the implications of big data for things like research and scholarship? Today on the show, we have Christine L. Borgman, who is Presidential Chair of Information at UCLA and the author of the new book, Big Data, Little Data, No Data, Scholarship in the Networked World, to give us an idea of what big data is and the implications of big data, and not just big data, but all different kinds of data. This is New Books in Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. The book is Big Data, Little Data, No Data, Scholarship in the Network Age. And on the show today, we have Christine L. Borgman. Now, Christine, one of the first things we always like to do is to have the authors of the new books give a little background on themselves. So perhaps you can tell a little bit about yourself, You know, where you went to school, how did you get interested in the topic you're writing about in the book, and those types of things.
1: Well, Um, I I started out in uh, mathematics and computing a long time ago, and uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities uh, for women other than being um, math teachers or programmers, neither of which was all that interesting at the time, and ended up in um, libraries and the automation of libraries in the 70s. And that turned out to be an ideal place to be because I was in at the ground floor as libraries were developing online catalogs, information retrieval systems, um, online literature databases like Science Citation Index were just coming online. Mm-hmm. And part of that. Uh, and it didn't take too long of building systems and implementing systems to realize that the, the human interface was the real challenge, not the technology. So that's what led me to the PhD in social sciences. I have a communication doctorate from Stanford, and uh, I spend most of my time in computer science and and cognitive science on the side. So then I landed in what's now the information studies program at UCLA, and I spent most of my career here, and I've wandered through information retrieval, human-computer interaction, and Studying the Changing Nature of Scholarship. Um, and data became a very interesting topic uh, by the late 90s or so, as uh, people were beginning to see it as something more than just process, beginning to see it as some kind of product that could be captured in databases and managed and libraries were interested in. Um, and it became a
0: bigger and bigger topic, and then it became a big
1: policy issue when the funding agency started requiring people to release their data and share the data with the people, and it turned out nobody really agreed to what data are in the first place. So after studying the role of data and scholarship for a oh, better part of 15 years now, um, it was time to turn it into an entire book exploring the reasons why, Data is such a, a mushy topic, and it's so hard to um, so hard to explain why it's so difficult to manage data, to share data, or to to reuse them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, you, you mentioned data and the the question of what the heck is data in the first place, and you spent mm-hmm. some time in the book discussing that—the fact that data means various dif- various things to various people, various disciplines. Um, and you you also mentioned one of my uh, the, one of the pieces I have students in my class read, and that is Buckland's information as a thing uh, reading in your book as well. But I wanted to know if you could talk about that the the idea that data really has no standard or standardized definition, and and what problems or issues that brings about for scholarship.
1: I think the the underlying problem is that if you read these funding agency pronouncements or even the journal announcements that say, thou shalt deposit thy data, it leaves you thinking it actually is a thing, where in fact, uh, data is much more, much more process than, than product. And where I end up at the end of the, the What Are Data chapters, as you point out, is to say that data refers to entities that are used as evidence of phenomena for the purposes of, of research or scholarship. Because when, when we go around and we ask um, scientists and other scholars what, what are their data, uh, you get a surprisingly head-scratching response. Uh, and particularly when you say, what would you share with someone? It's not clear if it's the signals off the instrument, if it's the spreadsheets, it's the zeros and ones, if it includes the, the data cleaning, the research protocols, or or sort of what else is included in the whole thing. Another example that's useful is to think about that lab rat or or mouse that might be used in, in many fields. And you can, you can study its behavior. You can feed it different things. You can put electrodes in it. You can watch how it responds to stimulus or response. And ultimately, people might sacrifice that that creature and take slides of it. But it's not the creature itself that's the data. It's what you choose to do with it. So it's those signals. It's that map. It's that record of how they respond different stimuli it's what you saw under the microscope those are the things that become data from it
2: so does the variance in uh, definitions and values for data in different fields does that uh, create an obstacle for say interdisciplinary scholarship and the use of data from different fields in other fields?
0: Um,
2: well, on the one hand, you know, what we want to do is certainly
1: promote interdisciplinary um, scholarship. And you know, what happens in conversations, even even within a field, is people negotiating meaning, negotiating information and and, and such and getting that transfer from, from one place to the next. In as soon as you start crossing... Uh, different backgrounds of training, different backgrounds of of research methods, you find that people are using the same words to mean different things and different words to mean the same things. And so data becomes that that very ephemeral thing that, that shows what the boundary is from one to the next. And you know, any kind of a research project, the first year may be spent uh, for people to understand what their common terminology is, and, and when they are using the same words to mean different things, we you know, we see, for example, in areas of biology that um, people have a hard time transferring from the method in which they were they did their PhD to the method of someone at the bench next to them. You know, they'll, they'll go about getting to an answer in a very very different way. And so to look at the product at the end you've, you've really got to talk through how it was that they, they got to that point. And then they'll describe it differently. So again that's that interdisciplinary transfer problem is um, you know how did I solve that problem? How did I measure temperature? how did you know what are the tolerances of, of this particular technique that I can use?
2: Okay So in the book, uh, big data, little data, no data. Um, talk about big data and I guess the the rhetoric surrounding big data and the media attention, and not just media attention, but the attention that funding agencies as well have giving to uh, whatever big data actually means. And I wonder if you could talk about this whole uh, phenomena of big data. And what that means for for scholarship currently? Okay,
1: it's a whole phenomenon of big data for um, for scholarship. On the one hand, um, scholars themselves like to throw around the notion of, of big data and say, you know, we're completely drowning in it. We're trying to figure out how to how to um, how to work with it. Um, at the same time, they're not. They have a hard time defining sort of what, where that boundary is. When, when does something become big data? Uh, the, the rhetoric would suggest that there's some new kind of knowledge that you can extract by just having enough of something, no matter what it is. Where in fact, what it, what it really comes down to is the ability to, to interpret whatever is in, whatever is in front of you. So, you know, you can drown in, two tablespoons of water, you can drown in two megabytes of data. If it's more than you know how to use, if it's more the instruments you have to manage it, it, it becomes big data.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, what is it about this period in which we are currently that makes data, and particularly big data, such a phenomenon? What, what is the, I guess, allure? Is it just because there's so much data and there's new tools and mechanisms to collect it, or is there something else or a couple of other things that are happening? Uh,
1: I think that's a question that most of us in this area have been uh, been wrestling with for a very long time, is um, you, know, you certainly see the, you know, the floods of numbers that Google gets, the Google trends on almost anything the fact that you could get so much of anything that this this n equals all that some people talk about—you don't need to sample anymore because you can get absolutely everything. But everything of what, and how do you interpret? How do you know how it was collected? How do you know how to trust it? How do you know how to verify it? You know, where's any kind of replicability in here? So I think it's the fact that there's there's some sense that there must be there's so much of it there must be some meaning you can extract from it, mm-hmm. and so. There's, there's questions that you can ask of, of this big thing. Um, but often real meaning and knowledge comes back to being able to trace the entire um, process from when somebody asked a question, how they decided what the research method was, how they decide to measure something, and you know when you get to the end of that chain, it's you know what am I going to publish? I've got to be able to verify, sign my name, take responsibility that I, I can say how I got from point A to point B. And when you try to use somebody else's data, somebody else's big data or little data, you don't know that whole chain. I think that's that's the interdisciplinary problem. It's a data exchange problem. It's the interpretation problem, no matter how big the set is you're working from.
2: Mm-hmm. So- in the book, you talk about scholarly uh, communications and open data and open scholarship, I should say, uh, right. as a as a general matter. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about a bit about the the idea of openness and that perhaps movement towards more openness, both open access journals mm-hmm. and open access to data, if you will. Right.
1: The open access journals has been underway, oh, again, since the 1990s, and it has dozens of meanings, but it kind of falls into two general camps. One is the um, opposition to the hegemony of, of a few major publishers that are controlling very large amounts of the ability to communicate. Uh, and so you know, information should be free and let's push back and so on. The other thread is a more democratic one, is if we can disseminate our knowledge more widely, we can reach people who don't otherwise have access to this knowledge. You know, once you leave the university, you no longer have that sign-on and you can't even get to the most basic journals anymore. But if you make them open access, then... Um, anyone from school child to interested adult, including people in other countries and other parts of the world, begin to have access to a broader array of knowledge than was ever possible before. So I think the second thread is is the more productive one to think about, but they're very hard to separate. There's very many complex business models going on in there that i wrestled with some in the Scholarship in the Digital Age book, the previous one, but I tried to focus just on, on the data issues here. In this one, I tried to draw the analogy between what's going on with open access to publications and open access to data, and to make the argument that they're really rather different things. Scholarly authors have an incentive to make their publications open. Because they would like to reach a larger audience, they're, and they're not going to make much you know, they're not going to make much money off them. The more that they're read, the better the, the greater their reputation. It's much more about reputation than it is about funding. Another part of it is that scholarly articles, um, articles in particular, are intended to be readable by themselves, you know back to Buckland and kind of the four corners of, of the document anyone with appropriate knowledge should be able to pick it up and read it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Neither of those are true for data. They they don't stand alone. It's very hard to interpret that string of zeros and ones unless you've got the right piece of software, you know the protocol, you know what happened in the field, and you may have to have a whole lot of other cleaning algorithms and, and things that went with it. To make sense out of it, which is also that, you know, why it's so hard to describe and to organize. Um, so it's the not standing alone, and then it's the sheer incentive. Is the effort that it takes to document your data so they can make sense to anybody else is huge, and it requires a set of skills that is not something one learns in graduate school. Mm-hmm. So really, so providing open access to data is asking people to do something very different and is well beyond what they're being asked to do as, as researchers and scholars and, and authors of scholarly literature.
2: Mm-hmm. Now you just talked about incentives, incentives mm-hmm. to perhaps like go beyond what they've learned, come up mm-hmm. with perhaps methods of recording and mm-hmm. archiving, but also putting in the work of letting other people know how to perhaps use the data. Um, And uh, coming to the, the idea that you talk about in the book of the value with respect to scholarly records, Mm -hmm. um, you talk about that. And I wonder if you could talk about like value. So if a person has no, I guess incentive to create a uh, record with respect to their data, uh, how much value then does it have to them or are we taking away possible value that could be used potentially by someone else? I don't even know if that makes sense.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> well, the difficulty of articulating questions like that is, is exactly where the, the challenge is and why I try to explain things with, with examples because it, it's, sure. it's very hard to generalize from them. Certainly, you know, scholars see value in their own data or we wouldn't be out collecting them in the first place. And we will describe them, we'll manage them well enough that that we can exploit them. But keeping them in some useful way beyond the end of this, you know, six-month or one-year, five-year research project may or may not be valuable. We see in, in astronomy where you, you, know, you can only go out and get that observation once that we do want to invest in keeping them. And then we look at many of the things that we did in studying sensor network researchers, and it's, it's much more of a work in progress. It's more exploratory research they're going out into a field, a swamp, a natural reserve, and they want to compare what's going on in wetter and drier places, in sunnier and less sunny places. And they, they can't do what degree of contrast they can get. So they collect those things. They you know they mark them up. They measure them very precisely within the, within the protocols that are normal for their discipline. Um But once they're done with them, the particular data set is so tied to that event, that time, that place, that they may not try to keep them indefinitely. They may not be useful five years from now. It also may be very difficult for anyone else to reuse them, not only because they weren't out in the field of the swamp, but because there's they're so much of a, a one-off of something fairly particular, it's hard to find the points of aggregation to bring them back together. That, I think that's really what the fundamental challenge is to determine which of these data people are going to find useful to themselves for longer periods of time, much less which they're going to find useful to other people for longer periods of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now. Y-
2: One of the other things you bring up in the book is about decision making, deciding which and what data to keep, to archive, to make available to other people. But you also bring up the idea of a a digital dark age. Some stuff is not uh, recorded or being recorded or being kept in a manner so that people – you know, weeks, months, years from now, can then return to that scholarship. And I want to know if you could talk about that as well.
1: Uh, the whole idea of the digital dark age. Yes. The, um, you know, as someone in the information field, you're certainly familiar um, with this. If It's hard enough to keep your paper photographs from your parents and, and your grandparents, <laughs> but or, um, you know, d- just try, t- try finding their, their digital records. I mean, if you didn't get that stuff off those floppy disks at the time, you're sure not going to go back to them. And it's partly a matter of being able to transfer from the one physical device to the next. Even if you could find a floppy disk drive, you wouldn't find a computer with the right uh, ports on the back to plug into it. Then the mag- you know the magnetic medium decayed. So we're we're in a situation where we have to migrate data from one format to the next as each physical technology changes and as each version, even moving from versions of Word or Excel or, you know, pick pick your favorite tool, you've got to keep moving them forward. It's not put it in acid-free paper and leave it on a shelf and keep it reasonable. You know, heating and, and air conditioning and, and humidity anymore. So this is also part of the challenge It's hard to explain is keeping digital records is a long-term commitment, and it's one that you have to keep renewing. So like one of the challenges that we face, particularly with data, is we're going to have to consider this, this selection decision not just at the point that we collected the data, but then, at the end of the project, you're going to say, "How long do I want to keep this?" And the longer I want to keep it, the more I'm going to have to invest in describing it, explaining it, putting all those other protocols, information around it. And then every one, two, three, five years, I'm going to have to go back and revisit it and say, "Is it worth continuing to move it forward?" Okay. So it's not. It's like think as renewing the lease. Mm-hmm. And how many things you want to keep renewing the lease on, and how you know for whom they're going to be useful in the longer term. So you may decide, well, I really want these to the five years of this grant project at the end of it. Well, no, maybe not. But at the end of that five year grant, the money has run out, and we don't have any good kind of economic or institutional or social policy that. Invest in transferring those forward. Mm-hmm. Even most of the big data repositories are funded as grants, and even those, so those are renewed on multi-year contracts. The the memory institutions, the libraries, the archives, the museums are wrestling with how much of these data they can take, but that's an unfunded mandate in many respects, and also means that they've got to invest in the expertise. Of the you know the physical storage, and then that continual migration, and um, this is the big social problem. This is the big knowledge infrastructure investment problem that we're we're facing as a community.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of the overarching themes in your book is that open access to data is a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift in. Many or different fields, social mm-hmm. sciences, the STEM fields, uh, humanities as well, uh, shift away from old ways of doing things to new ways of doing things. And I want to know if you, you could talk about the, this paradigm shift and what that paradigm shift means then for the future of scholarship uh, in this network world. Okay.
1: That's a very good question for the future of scholarship.
2: Um, so is the paradigm shift...
1: But it's it's a paradigm shift that's being imposed on people. It's not really clear. It's it's something organic that's coming from the the bottom up. Uh, scholars are you know definitely committed to wanting to keep their publications alive indefinitely. It's not clear how much scholars are committed to keeping their data alive indefinitely. Mm-hmm. One of the things I explored in chapter eight was whether this was really a supply and demand problem. You know, is it that the are the funding agencies and the journals trying to increase the supply of data? And back to your earlier question about big data and having it all out there, so that other people can use it because we're not finding very much reuse. Um, is it a chicken-egg egg problem? If we can increase the supply, will that increase demand? And then will the paradigm shift so that people make more use of existing data rather than feeling like they've like always got to go out and, and use new data? Uh, but I finally concluded it's really not supply and demand, one reason being that information goods certainly you know, don't behave like physical goods in, in the economic sense. But you know, reusing somebody else's data is not like reusing somebody else's physical tool, you know, using, reusing their typewriter, reusing their scissors, or, you know, or whatever. It's, um, you can spend 80 to 90% of your time just trying to clean and organize existing data before you get the real meaning out of it. And certainly even in the business world, if you've read some of these these books on on big data about how to get value out of them, they will tell you that you're spending the vast majority of your time trying to make sense out of it, trying to find what parameters you can match, trying to learn enough about its origins, know what to trust and what not to trust. So the, the incentives have not been there to invest in reusing somebody else's data and the incentives aren't there for in most fields to invest in marking up and managing your data for unknown others. People often don't release their data because they can't imagine who else might use it for what, for what reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also gets us back to whether the paradigm shift is really about sharing in terms of personal relationships or whether it's about openness of let's just work completely in the open and let other people build off what we're doing. If you think about sharing as a relationship, then we do see that uh, one scholar will come to somebody else, usually somebody they know, and say, "I saw this. Uh, I saw this journal article of yours. It looks like you got some interesting evidence." That might be some good comparison for something I'm doing. Would you share your data set with me? And if they reach an agreement, then the scholar who created that first data set might say, yeah, sure, but I need to spend some time explaining to you exactly how I arrived at this and what the strengths are, what the limitations are. And they might agree to release it for an acknowledgement. They might want co-authorship. Something new might come out of this. But because they're having this conversation, that meaning transfers, that context transfers. And that's what doesn't happen usually when somebody simply takes a data set and deposits in a repository. Or maybe if they just put up on their website and say, here, take it. Other people can come along and say, well, fine, here's a bunch of numbers, but I don't know exactly who was interviewed. I don't know where they came from. I don't know how to compare this to anything else. So that's where that breakdown happens. That's where that that transfer happens. So it's not clear how much of a paradigm shift it is. Certainly genomics made that shift. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You've got a certain kind of science where you've got agreed upon structures. You've got agreed upon ways of describing things. Even there, I think you've, you've got cases where uh, the data are not useful for very long periods of time. Uh, some data are cleaner than others. People are releasing them until they publish the article. There's embargo periods and other things going on.
2: Okay. Do you foresee um, in this movement towards... Um, scholarship in the open, do you foresee the creation of perhaps standards for collecting and memorializing data in the future? St-
1: well, standards for collect I like memorializing. That's a good way to, to think about <laughs> um, collecting and, and, and keeping them. Well, certainly we have standards, but the standards tend to be pretty field-specific. So astronomy, where we've been spending a good bit of time, they agreed on some standard structures back in the late 1970s. And those have allowed them to merge data and combine data from around the world and, and many instruments. And you've, uh, they've also agreed on a coordinate system. It's called the world coordinate system. So it's much like latitude and longitude on the earth. It's, it's a way of doing coordinates on the sky. And because they've agreed on those, it allows them to merge data in, in ways that are hard to do otherwise. You get into fields like uh, biology, and you, you don't have those agreed-upon coordinate systems. People don't agree on you know, completely even what to call parts of, of the human body. One of the things with uh, groups we started to study is a collaboration between uh, craniofacial researchers. And some of them are looking at some fish models, some at some human models, some at some mouse models. And because they're all concerned about facial deformities, they've come together, and yet they have standards that are specific to the their own kind of animal model they have. mm mm-hmm. They each agree that the face has three parts. There's, there's a mouth part, there's a mid face, and there's a forehead part, but they don't agree to where that draw that line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it makes it very hard for them to merge those. So you can either choose to work off a standard around the problem area, or you can choose to work off a standard around your animal model, but they're in direct conflict with each other. And we're never going to get a a perfect intersection any more than we're going to get a perfect intersection of of language. English and French or Spanish, Russian, whatever, are never going to be completely translatable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plus, you've got, you know, all of these are going to be fast-moving research fronts. There was a, a big case of fraud in psychology a couple of years ago and the response of some people in psychology was to come up with ways to force replicability or reproducibility. And on the one hand, some people said, oh, yes, good practice. We're going to have standards. We're going to have an agreed-upon way of doing things. And then other people said, if you impose too rigid a way of doing our methods, we're going to isolate and rigidify this field.
0: Mm-hmm
1: because we're going to discourage people from coming up with new methods and new ways of asking questions. So, you know, standards are important for exchange, but they can also be barriers to to moving between disciplines, moving into new methods, moving into new directions. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Thank you very much. So the book is Big Data, Little Data, No Data, Scholarship in the Network World. So if you were to give an elevator pitch, Right, someone who just tuned in right now to new books okay. and technology, and they're listening to this, you know, back end portion. What would you want them to take away from, you know, the book and make them go actually go get the book? Go get the book.
1: I would like them to get excited about the idea that data are everywhere and nowhere at all at the <laughs> same time. Um, that data are very much in the eye of the beholder, Mm -hmm. that we need to understand how scholarship works, how people think, how they interpret. um, If we're going to really be able to exploit to get the value um, of scholarship of research, and find a way to pass that knowledge on to another generation so that people can come back and say, how did they do that research? How did they learn something? We've got Galileo's notebooks. We know how Galileo recorded his data. We're not going to know how most of today's researchers recorded their data because it's going to be on ephemeral technologies that are going to disappear very quickly. And we need to think about what we want to keep, why we want to keep it, and how.
2: I'm sold. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what's next for you?
1: Um, what's next is we're continuing to work in the field and um, follow scientists and scholars around through the mud and on the ocean and the seafloor and, and in the sky. And uh, the, the way you learn is to, to be out there with them. You ask them questions um, and you see what makes sense and what's not. But what's really fascinating is being out there in the world with them, trying to watch them solve their own problems. Mm-hmm.
2: And if uh, a listener wants to read more from you, uh, do you have a website? Or- I have what's a
1: website. It's uh, christineborgman.info. And uh, link there, you will find pointers to our various research projects uh, to the website of knowledge infrastructures with my fabulous team of graduate students and postdocs and links to a couple hundred publications, journal articles. you find videos, talks, and um, as many multimedia as I can offer are all
2: there. <laughs> Sounds good. So the book is Big Data, Little Data, No Data, Scholarship in the Network World. We've had on Christine L. Borgman. Thank you very much, Christine, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Jasmine. Enjoyed it very much.